Hey folks, right at the top of this episode, we wanted to invite you to partner with us in our work at Theopolis. For the next month or so, we are going to be doing our fundraising campaign. And also at the end of the year, we tend to do a bit of reflection and retrospection looking back at what we've been able to accomplish together. This year, we've been able to release over 100 podcasts, over 50 videos, dozens of articles, including conversation pieces on vaccine mandates, biblical law, musical theater, and national conservatism. We've released two volumes in our Theopolis Exploration series, and we have one more in the pipeline. We also had two sessions of our Civitas group and the launching of the newly released Civitas podcast that just came out this week. We also held our regular intensive courses. This year, those courses were on missions and history, and we also held regional courses on a theology of creation and psalm chanting. Beyond all of this, though, the most important work that we do involves lives being transformed. Some of your lives have been changed by listening to Jim Jordan's lectures on Fridays or our different series on Wednesdays. And we could not do this important work without your support. Theopolis is almost entirely donor-based, so we'd love for you to consider a donation to our work during our year-end fundraising push so that we can have another pleasant retrospective at this time next year. To give to our work or to become a partner, there's a link in the show notes, or you can head to theopolisinstitute.com and click on the Give tab. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series, walking through James Jordan's work through new eyes. And here, the team will be walking through the chapter on sun, moon, and stars. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing over, over all of the infelicities in the recording so that it can get to you, our listening audience. We thank you for listening to our podcast. We are at the beginning of a series uh, going through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. For a number of us, this has been a formative book in our understanding of scripture, in our understanding of the world, in our understanding of theology in general. And uh, it's just been one of them for me, and I think for several of us, it's been among the two or three most important books that we've ever read, one that we go back to constantly. So we we thought it's uh, it'd be helpful to work through the book uh, and to discuss the various dimensions of it. So that's what we've been doing the last few weeks on a podcast. Uh, this week we're in uh, chapter five of Through New Eyes, which is called Sun, Moon, and Stars, and it's looking at the heavenly lights that God creates on day four and uh, places in the firmament. Uh, I wanted to highlight a couple of general points before we get into the specifics of what Jim says about these. Uh, one of the things that I think people misunderstand about Jim's Jim's work, he spends a lot of time talking about symbolism, defending a symbolic understanding of reality. And I think that people sometimes slot that into a, uh, if it's symbolic, therefore it's not real kind of paradigm, which is the opposite of what Jim is saying. Uh, Jim is insisting that reality is in fact symbolic, that there isn't any bifurcation between symbolic and real. And we've talked about that a number of times through the course of the podcast series. But I think a couple of things come out in this chapter and the next that I think are intriguing on that in that regard. One of them is the psychological dimension that he brings up um, pretty frequently. He asked, for example, in the 
chapter on sun, moon, and stars, why is it that human beings uh, are attracted to the sky uh, on a starry night? Uh, what makes us look up into the sky and see the majesty that's in the sky? Or what makes us uh, look at the moon, the brilliance of the moon? Or what uh, makes us um, in awe of the, the brightness of the sun? And uh, Jim's argument is that, that that has a theological root. The reason why we respond that way to the world is because the world is a manifestation of the glory of God. God himself is light. He is light inaccessible. He's light without shadow turning, as uh, James says. God is light, and so when he creates light, he's creating things that manifest his character. We're created as the images of God, and so we have this inbuilt, created responsiveness to the manifestation of God's glory in the heavens. And Jim is going to say the same thing in the following chapter when he talks about gemstones, for example. What, what makes us attracted to gemstones or to gold? Uh, it's not a matter of economic value fundamentally. It's a matter of our uh, responsiveness to the beauty of the world and the beauty of the world as a manifestation of the beauty and the glory of God. So there's a there's a psychological dimension to this that I think is is important to see that uh, and it's a, and it's a very realistic kind of point to make. It's um, you know everyone goes. I feel this most often when I'm out in Idaho. We lived in Idaho for 15 years, and I would step out on my back deck uh, many nights of the year and would be able to see the Milky Way stretching across the sky in my backyard. Uh, and it's just awesome. It's awe-inspiring. We lived in an area which didn't have light pollution, and so we were able to see a genuinely star-filled sky. And it's just breathtaking. And the, the reason why it's breathtaking, the reason why it attracts us is because it's a manifestation of God's glory. The other thing that he brings out in this chapter that we'll talk about in more detail is the political dimensions of the symbolism of the sun, moon, and stars. And again, we often think of symbolism and politics as being in, kind of being in separate realms, but Jim is contesting that separation. And it, I mean, just realistically, that separation doesn't exist. If we if we reflect on the way politics works, uh, then we know that politics is infused with symbolism. Uh, that's infused with music. It's infused with slogans. It's infused with a visual symbolism that captures the imagination, and so draws people to follow certain political leaders. That's, uh, you know, that's, that is in fact the way politics works. And Jim is bringing out that political dimension of symbolism by talking about the symbolism of the heavenly bodies. The symbolism of the heavenly bodies is a political symbolism. So there's a, it's an interesting interplay constantly in, in Jim's work between the created features of reality, the way God has made things on the one hand, and the biblical account of them on the other. And uh, Jim refuses to, to put those in two separate categories. He's constantly showing the interplay. Sun, moon, and stars are in fact bright. Sun, moon, and stars are in fact high in the sky. And so they have a created affinity for political rulers who are elevated above others. They have a created, they have a created psychological affinity uh, that attracts our interest and attracts our wonder. Uh, and that, that, again, I think is something that um, uh, many people miss is that that interplay of general revelation, special revelation, if you want to want to use those terms. And on a more general note, too, Peter, in response to what you just said, one of the things that attracted me to Jim's approach to reading the scriptures and also reading creation was that he sees uh, correspondences running in all directions among things, you know. So the world is not just a random tumble of things 
that all appear separately, individually, and all struggling, you know, for a place of their own. Uh, one thing signals another, uh, and the other thing signals something else, so that everything is connected in some interesting and deep way. And the way, that's the way Jim reads the Bible, is looking for associations, uh, real associations, not imagined ones. And I don't know if I've said this before, that there are times in listening to Jim or in reading Jim, I'll read a paragraph or hear him talk about some connection, some association, some illusions, some symbolism. And I'll think, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a stretch that I don't know about that. And then a couple of years later, I'll, I'll uh, be, you know, preaching through some section or teaching or, and I'll, I'll think, wait a minute, Jim said something about this and look, they're, actually is a connection and it makes sense now. <laughs> now. Um, and it, it, it's, it was his, always his ability to connect things um, and to see the connections, not just to artificially connect things, but to see the connections, especially in the Hebrew scriptures that um, just it fascinated me, but it also is extremely instructive in how I should read the Bible. Yeah. And some of that comes back to, um, what we were saying in previous weeks, I'm just looking at, um, where are we? Page 54 of Jim's book now. Um, this is to do with just the general use of symbols. Jim talks about the way in which uh, stars reflect uh, God's light and God's glory and all the rest of it, and then goes on to um, liken them later on in, in, in that page to um, kings, the way in which they represent uh kings and that then isn't just a simple association kind of stars equals kings but you've got these two symbols oh, i guess it's right to call them that two symbols which mutually shed light upon one another so in the same way that stars are glorious and exalted by god um kings and kingdoms are glorious and even fallen gentile kingdoms in scripture can be spoken about as having a, a kind of glory and and a wonder to them um and then vice versa kind of the way in which kings shape the world and exert authority that can kind of cast light upon what stars do and the way in which stars and the seasons and rotations and so on kind of structure the world in which we live and and dictate kind of new times and you see a lot of that kind of merging and being played out in a book like Daniel, for instance. So um, I think it's Antiochus probably, isn't it, in chapter um, eight, a king who grows up towards the heavens and starts casting down stars and um, wants to exalt himself. And he actually is said to seek to change times and seasons, or at least one of the kings in Daniel is. And so he kind of starts doing what a star does and i'm just mentioning this because this seems to be another example of one of those things where um we don't just want to kind of uh think of these symbols as codes that we kind of just cut and paste star and replace it with king in our bibles but we kind of use this whole network of of symbols to um to interpret one another yeah i think that's really important uh and and again there's a there's a kind of literal literal connection, a literal bridge between the symbol and the reality, back and forth between the symbol and the reality. As you say, 
uh, kings actually do share a kind of glory or rulers share a kind of glory that is like the glory of stars. And uh, so that, or, or the, the issue of time that you mentioned that uh, uh, rulers determine times. So you just look at the, the way that epochs of history are enumerated. Epochs of history are often laid out according to dominant political figures during the time then during, during the, during that period of history. This is the, you know, Today, many think, I think, uh, uh, exaggeratedly, that this is the age of Trump or something like that. That there's a that there's a uh, a particular figure who defines the time, and that is a function of the heavenly bodies, the heavenly lights. Uh, there are, among other things, there among other things, uh, timekeepers, and so yeah, there's this interplay between the two. Uh, I wanted to point to as uh, uh, just as the basis for all that Jim says about sun, moon, and stars, uh, the way that. God describes the purpose of the heavenly lights in Genesis 1. Uh, of course, uh, light is created on day one. There's a light source that is not the sun, moon, and stars for the first three days. Uh, I think the best inference is that light source is God himself, that uh, he or maybe specifically the spirit is shining the light into the world, uh, withdrawing the light at night. And then that task of organizing darkness and, and light that task of shedding light on the earth is delegated to creatures in on day four. Uh, but let me read the let me read a couple of verses uh, in the day four account. Uh, God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night." That's a divine task. God has been separating the day and the night. He did that at the beginning. Now, now the the creatures, the sun, moon, and stars are going to do it. And let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, and it was so. And it's that uh, list of purposes that comes at the end of verse 14. God has created the heavenly lights for signs. They are created to be symbols. It's not just that we attribute symbolism to them, but they are created to have symbolic force. Uh, they are created for seasons, and as Jim frequently has pointed out, the word there is moed, which is typically the word for uh, the festival seasons and festival seasons in the Old Testament, at least, are governed by, uh, par- particularly by the moon, by uh, by by heavenly bodies, uh, and then for days and years, they're timekeepers. Uh, so that that list of functions that God has built into the heavenly lights that's that's what's laid out in Genesis one. And in Genesis one, we also see the example of mankind as a sort of extension of the logic of the stars. So you have the greater light, we could maybe think about that as God's light or the Shekinah glory, could maybe think then of this step down, the impress of that greater light upon the lights that are delegated in um, the fourth day. And then on the sixth day, mankind is created. So just as the lights are created in the heavens to rule the day and the night, so we have mankind designed to rule on the earth and over the creatures of the sea. And that movement down is also seen to some extent in the analogy of the next chapter, where you have the way in which man is placed within the garden, like the lights are placed within the firmament. And we can see the same sort of logic within the tabernacle, the lampstand and the anointing of the priest, they're connected together. So you have the lampstand created on day one, that great light. Then you have the light that's used to light it with the oil for the lamps on day four. And that corresponds with the setting of um, 
the priests apart because the oil for the priests is also appointed on the day four cycle. And as we look through scripture, I think we can see other ways in which those sorts of connections are drawn. So as um, Jim mentions, the connection with the dream of Joseph, where the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down. There's a sort of um, zodiacal imagery there, perhaps, but the sun and the moon um, represent the father and the mother. It's automatically interpreted that way by Jacob. And then the 11 stars are like the suns of the sun and the moon. And so that sort of imagery is just very naturally translated from one level to another. So when we see the stars, we should see something about what humankind is and what male and female are. Um, we can think even naturally the connection between the cycles of the moon and the cycles for women. Or we can think about the way in which the sun, moon and stars, as we see them, don't just bring our eyes to reflect upon the stars of human society, the rulers and the judges, but also to look beyond to the light that is above them, um, the light of the first day. And so that movement up and down is one that we're undertaking constantly within this symbolic way of viewing the world. So one observation that might help just as a pastor, uh, someone who's for over 30 years has been uh, attempting to help people uh, see how symbolism works in the scripture, how God has uh, uh you know, set these symbols into the world and into scripture and into our lives. It is, it is instructive to me that Jim begins detailed descriptions with this sun, moon, and stars, and on the fourth day of creation. Because I have found that this is an excellent way, a great segue for people who, especially modern people, who want to read um, everything like this in the Bible through the lens of modern science. Uh, they they see this when you start reading uh, with them, helping them read you know, Genesis 1, 14, 15, 16, and then showing them how this connects with uh, with life. You know, okay, so uh, what does it mean? Their signs? What does it mean? Their festival times? What does it mean? They work as clocks, and then oh oh, they govern the day. They rule over the night. And then you, all you have to do is start just taking them to passages uh, like Genesis 37 or, or some of the prophets, and all of a sudden they begin to see, oh, okay, this all makes sense. It's, it's all connected in a way that is not just our imagination, arbitrary. It fits with our world. It fits with our experience. It fits with what God says all through the scriptures. And I have found that starting with this will help people uh, at least break down some of their defenses against uh, symbolic readings because of their more modernist uh, assumptions. Something I found helpful in this chapter was the way in which Jim, yeah, he talks about the um, sun and moon and so on as uh, reflective of God's um, God's light, God's glory. Um, but then he also talks about the way in which God at various times darkens the skies and acts as a cloud that, that covers the skies and, and takes away light. And, I mean, it, it was a fairly sort of simple point. Jim, Jim likens that to um, 
the cloud between the Israelites and the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus and the way in which it was light for one and, and dark for the other. And ties that back to creation. And I, I, I guess I'd just never thought about that before, the way in which from day one, quite literally from day one, when God creates light, he also thereby creates darkness and he doesn't make the universe just this place of consistent unmitigated light but creates light presumably from a particular source such that there is light and day and a a, a differentiation between light and darkness from the very outset of creation and something i guess that's um occurred to me then is the way in which what jim is doing through this book is building very much on the earlier chapters so it's not like you can just dive into chapter five and and download everything about sun moon and stars but there's this kind of uh uh way in which the the book progresses and and develops on the foundations it's laid and that creation of light on the first day the nature of it is worth reflecting upon it's something that we might think of just as a physical body there is a body of light created in the heavens but that would be the wrong way to see it it is very much presented as a state of the day and then what's created is already time it's the alternation between day and night and the creation of the light is the creation of the day and that alternation then helps us to see already on day one there is this um, ruling of time by light because prior to that there is neither day or night yeah, I want to go back to something that uh, Jeff said about the pastoral import of this. I think that one of the specific places that this getting this uh, creation matrix in 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 view, getting that fixed in our minds at the beginning of our understanding of Scripture, one of the particular places that helps is when you're reading prophetic passages that are talking about astronomical uh, events, passages in Isaiah, for example, where. Uh, many many passages in the prophets, but I'm thinking of Isaiah 13 and 14, which uses language of the uh, the sun going black, the moon turning to blood, stars falling from the sky. That imagery is frequent in the prophets. It's used by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, and uh, it's used in several places in the book of Revelation. And that's often read in uh, so-called literal terms as the actual collapse of the physical universe. I think N.T. Wright has made a, a great case for understanding those passages in the Gospels, especially uh, as predictions of the collapse of an old order, a collapse of uh, the, the the end of Jerusalem as the, cent- the central city in the old order, uh, the shaking of powers in the Roman Empire. But what, what Jim's insight uh, coming from Genesis provides is that this that imagery is not at all arbitrary to, to think about rulers to conceive of rulers falling as stars falling from the sky, or uh, the time time is up for a particular ruler, and to symbolize that as the moon turning to blood, the moon being eclipsed, or the sun being eclipsed and going out, that kind of imagery in the prophets and uh, in the Gospels and at Revelation is rooted in that Old Testament that that, that created that created association between rulers and. Uh, and the heavenly lights. So that that just I'm just reiterating what you said with a specific example, Jeff. But it's it relieves it of the worry that you're just being arbitrary. Well, how did how did you come up with that idea that the sun, moon, and stars are rulers in the heavens? Well, it's because that's what they're created to be. Yeah, that is so true. And 
I'll give you another example. I have this chapter uh, PDF. I scanned it and made a PDF, and it always comes up. Uh, in fact, it actually came up uh, this Sunday because one of the readings was from the Olivet Discord for Advent, the first uh, Sunday in Advent, and uh, I had said something from the pulpit before I read it that what we were reading is not about the end of the world, but about the destruction of Jerusalem, one of the comings of Jesus and one of the promises of his coming that he made uh, and that has has happened. Another, It's another support. You know, Advent is all about the coming of Jesus, not pretending that he's hasn't come yet or let's, let's play like we're living before uh, Jesus was born, but it's about... Uh, us praying for his coming to us on the Lord's day and coming to us in all sorts of other ways. And eventually, of course, coming to us um, in, in the last day for the new heavens and new earth. But, but I read that passage and I said, this is about destruction of Jerusalem. And at one family, a new family come up to me and says, well, that, that can't be because of what Jesus talks about, you know, the, the world, uh, you know, being destroyed or whatever. I can't remember their language. Uh, now, I haven't sent them this passage, this chapter yet, but I've sent this chapter to a lot of people, and once they see it, uh, it really helps them understand uh, the language of the prophets uh, and to be not so literal, literalistic about it uh, and um, not always trying to, to uh, connect, you know, modern scientific kinds of concerns with um the, the language of the Bible. Yeah, good point. Another specific thing that I think is uh, really insightful here is the 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 way that the moon functions, uh, particularly the way the moon functions as a marker of seasons or festival times. Uh, that's true in the Old Covenant. You have uh, uh, new moon festivals at the beginning of each month, at each new moon, obviously. Uh, you have Passover that's marked by the position of the, of the moon after the vernal equinox, and then everything else is marked out by, from that point, you count off certain numbers of days to get to Pentecost. You've got a series of festivals in the seventh month, but the month is determined by the by the, the phases of the moon and the beginning of the moon. So the moon is a governing, a governing light, keeping time for Israel's festivities, keeping times. Uh, it's not just a, it's not just the light that's in the sky at night, but it's uh, cycles throughout the year. Are marking Israel's Israel's feasts. Uh, uh, Leviticus twenty three is one place where these feasts are laid out uh, month by month. One of the I interesting things about that is that it's the it's the light of night that is uh, that is uh, marking out the festival times of the old covenant, and that fits with a much broader theme that uh, comes up right at the beginning of Genesis one. First, there's darkness, and then God says, "Let there be light," and there's light. Uh, throughout Genesis 1, the sequence of days, the, the rhythm of the day is described as being evening and then morning. So the sequence is from darkness to light. And that is the those are small-scale types, if you will, of the large-scale transition from the Old Testament, a rel the relative darkness of the Old Testament, which is governed by the moon, the light of night, to the rising of the sun in the New Testament and the bursting of Je the bursting of Jesus as the the Son of Righteousness who comes with healing in His wings, so you have that uh, that large scale shift. It's the what you see every day, in other words, uh, in the movement from uh, sunrise to sunset to moonrise to moonset. That cycle is a kind of daily 
repetition, a reminder of the cycles of redemptive history. It's a cycle of uh, old covenant yielding to new covenant, the, the darkness yielding to the light, which which means that the, the various places where I think the, uh, the darkness light imagery of the Bible is not being uh, used to describe darkness as evil and light as good, rather darkness is uh, immaturity or darkness is first, darkness is protology, and light is last, light is uh, eschatology. So that sequence is is rooted in Genesis 1 and the way the, the heavenly lights are described. One way we might illustrate this is as the sort of establishment of a piece of music. So the day-night pattern is like that first starting of the beat. And then later on, that beat becomes more complicated as it is the developed rhythm of um, the the seasons and the months and the week and everything else that develops. But essentially what we see in um, Genesis 1 is this um, ordering of time according to rhythms and beats, and then that being filled out with all these other things. And the sun and the moon are just essential to that pattern that's established. It's just that regular beat. And then you have these more complicated um, and syncopated um, ways that that's played out um, with the various feasts and the ways in which we can see it on a higher level is the patterns of eras or of greater spans of history. And, and can't we also add to that the church in, uh, in her wisdom, as Peter was talking about earlier, the old world was governed by the moon, the new world is now governed by the sun. Uh, and so the church in its wisdom ordered uh, the church here, ordered the various cycles according to the, the light and darkness theme, the sun, but the sun was now uh, the, uh, the key uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to order things. So you got around winter solstice, you got Christmas, and that's when the, the, uh, the night, the darkness is the longest and begins to give way to, uh, to the day. And then you come to uh, vernal equinox in the spring when the light overtakes the darkness, and that's when you have Easter. Uh, and all that is is uh, quite wise, I think, uh, because again, we back to Genesis one, we are we are still living. We're, we're in the created world that God established. We haven't come into a new heavens and a new earth. We don't know exactly how light and darkness will function there, except that there doesn't appear to be any darkness. And who? Um, but I might be wrong about that. Anyway, so uh, this is these natural cycles then are redeemed by the word of God in prayer, as Paul says to Timothy in First Timothy four, uh, and and this is this is I think a wise use of these this symbolism of light and darkness, sun, moon, and stars. I think another important uh, implication of this uh, of understanding the symbolism is to. You begin to see dimensions of certain passages that you wouldn't you, that you would miss otherwise. Uh, I think somebody already mentioned Joseph's Joseph and his brothers Joseph's dream, which is a dream in terms of stars or constellations, uh, and that um, again just it's not an arbitrary it's not an arbitrary connection between the constellations and uh, the sons of the sons of Jacob, but it's uh, a hint that. Uh, of the destiny of this people. This this is a heavenly people. 
uh, and they're destined to shine like stars in the heavens. Uh, or the other the other example that prior to that in the book of Genesis is when uh, Abraham is uh, told to go out of his tent and to tell or account for the stars. Uh, we usually read that properly at one level, properly as uh, Abraham is going to have many, 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 many descendants, uh, as many as the stars. He's going to have billions and billions of descendants, as Carl Sagan used to say on whatever show he hosted. That's that's a, that's a reference that's lost on almost everybody listening to this, I'm sure. Um, there's billions and billions of descendants of Abraham, but it, this is not just about the number, but he's looking at the stars. He also did look at the sand on the seashore. Uh, Israel is going to cover the earth. His, the, the sons of Abraham are going to cover the earth, but they're also going to be a heavenly people. And it's not simply a matter of the number of the stars, but the uh, the elevation of the stars, the governing power of the stars, the fact that the stars are keeping time. Uh, time is on t- time is in the hands of the heavenly bodies, and that's where the saints are. Um, and so there's all these other dimensions to the promise uh, covenant promise to Abraham that are go beyond the what's on the surface. Once we start reading that passage in Genesis 15 in the light of uh, these these creation patterns from Genesis one. I wonder if we could touch upon this whole issue with the zodiac and various things which Jim says about that. Obviously, I'm coming to this book um well, with new eyes i suppose because i haven't read the thing before and but i had heard uh various people talking about how israel's tribes are likened to the zodiac by jim in various ways and i think that's a helpful thing to think about just because it it strikes me as a, a sort of classic case because when i first heard that i thought well that sounds a bit nuts really um but Looking through it in a more systematic way, there's a lot more about it that makes more sense once you fit it into the structure of Israel being like the stars initially as far as Abraham is concerned. And then Jim talks about various connections between, for instance, how long some of the patriarchs um, between Adam and uh, Noah and actually later between Noah and Abraham live and various connections between them and the number of days in a year, for instance, 365 days. And again, that sounds initially a bit, well, so what? Why, why would there be a connection between those two things? But again, it, it starts to take on a bit more value, to my mind at least, when you put it in a, in a broader context. You know, God has given stars and the sun and, and the moon to mark time. And then actually our only way of counting time between Adam and the birth of Israel is through those patriarchal genealogies that we have. So we don't know how long Cain or any of his descendants um, lasted. We have this kind of timed history through um, Seth and, and through Adam, through to Noah and through to Abraham uniquely. you know. So those patriarchs, literally their lives determine time for us and that continues all the way through to um the birth of levi so um i guess through um uh, birth of moses in, in fact so through that levitical line at which point it dries up and i guess the function of marking time is then taken on by the um tabernacle and and the sort of the uh, moedim the the moed that kind of are, are referred to in and in creation initially and then the idea kind of in that larger framework, then the idea of some of these 
number of years that people live for having some astronomical relevance and so on starts to take on a bit more value and i thought i'd mention that just because i think that's the sort of thing that uh repeatedly comes up and that jeff was mentioning earlier initially something seems quite wacky but put in a wider framework other things start to slot into place yeah i think that's exactly right and i think you're you're right to catch the connection with the timekeeping in genesis uh, and it does seem like that exactly that connection is there jim also points to the fact uh he's uh relying on an old uh an old essay uh that uh, connects the numbers of the in the census in the book of numbers the numbers of members of each tribe a number of those have some kind of numerical relationship with certain kinds of cycles and they're not always cycles of earthly time they're sometimes cycles of like the the year uh, the the number of days in Jupiter's year or something like that I'm I don't remember the specifics but uh yeah when you when you put when you put the put those kinds of what uh, what Jim often calls the deep weird when you put those deep weird connections into the context of creation then you start saying well what is that saying it's saying that yes the patriarchs who have who have uh, the years of their life they are actually keeping time and they're a kind of heavenly people uh, and the numbers of their lifetimes are indicators that they are heavenly people. The same thing is true of the camp in the wilderness when you have the different tribes gathered around the tabernacle. Uh, Jim makes the case that at least the lead tribes of uh, each corner of the tabernacle correspond at least roughly with uh, some of the with the constellations, the, the main constellations uh, of uh, of the zodiac. And then that again, that's not just an arbitrary deep weird connection that's a connection that indicates that this people which has just come out of egypt organize around the presence of god and the throne of god that that whole organization on earth the tabernacle with god's throne in the center surrounded by the people of israel that is heaven heaven come down to earth uh, heaven imprinting itself on earth uh, and the numbers reinforce that uh, that uh, that connection yeah, Jim later on also makes connections uh, with the Zodiac and the, and the 12 sons from Genesis 49. And some of those connections are, are pretty convincing. Uh, and I also remember, and I think Geneva Divinity School Press or whatever it was called back in the 80s, re- reprinted the book by Dwayne Spencer. And I think, I believe he was a Orthodox Presbyterian minister, and it was called the Gospel in the Stars, um, and the Bible in the Zodiac, um, and I think that that book was somewhat influential with uh, Jim and the guys down in Tyler. I'm not sure if it's still available or not. Yeah, I guess the other background thing is uh, the uh, uh, the Jim cites several passages where God speaks of constellations. And claims to know the all the constellations by name, and uh, so the the constellations are not just again just projections of human ingenuity on this uh, this uh, chaos of stars. They are organized in some fashion to communicate. They're organized in order to be signs, not just individual stars, but collections of stars and formations of stars are into are created to be to signify. And once you, again, when, once you once you bring that into the mix, God God talking about constellations and saying He created constellations, uh, that begins to make a connection between the 
the uh, constellations of the zodiac and the, the symbolism of the Bible. One thing I've wondered about, and I want to throw this out there and see what the rest of you think, is whether we should make anything of the fact that within, um, particularly Luke and Acts, there is a dis- there are a disproportionate number of signs of the zodiac symbols. Um, think about the man bearing the water pitcher. That's an unusual image, but we have that in Luke. We have the symbol of the Dioscori of the um, the twins. There's the sign of the vessel at the end and it's mentioned it seems incidental but it's it's there in the text or we have the two fish um we have the virgin um we have the lion all these sorts of symbols that are associated with the zodiac and yet they come up in unusual ways and we would not expect some of these images i mean the man with the water picture is a very unusual one um, and then some of the others just seem surprising. Do you think there's anything to that? Um, what should we make of it? Has anyone done anything with that, Alistair? Do you know of any essays or studies on that? Um, I don't. If anyone does, please contact me. When we sing the Lorica in our service, especially at baptisms, I've, I've noticed it over the years, I've had a number of people, quite a few people, come to me and say, why do we sing stanza number four? And we bind unto ourselves the virtues of the starlit heaven, the glorious sun's life-giving ray, the whiteness of the, of the um, moon at evening, and, and, and all of that. And, uh, and some people even said, oh, it sounds pagan to me. And my response has been, look, when you're baptized, when you become a believer, you see everything with new eyes. You appreciate everything, sun, moon, stars, even the old undying rocks, as we say at the end of that stanza. Uh, and, and this is one of the things I think that Jim's book does in this chapter in particular, it helps us to see, to appreciate the multi-layered significance of sun, moon, stars, and all the heavenly lights, and how they function, binding to ourselves again at a baptism, not just the Lord God, but all of his creation, not just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the way he has infused creation with this multi-layered meaning, significance. Um, We've not only been restored to him, he's not only restored us to himself, but he's restored us to live in his creation with new eyes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.